it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. And that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer and the brewing industry and have a conversation with the people who make the industry what it is and see what we can learn from them. And this week, I have a great chat with Chris Pisney and Jen Blair from the Cicerone Program. Chris is the program director and Jen is the exam manager. And Jen has just attained the highest accolade for Cicerones, becoming a master Cicerone, joining a group of only 22 other individuals worldwide to achieve that title. Education has always been in short supply in the brewing industry, and as beer styles have changed and evolved dramatically over the course of the last two decades, making beer service and consumer advice relevant to the highly diverse marketplace has never been harder or more important. In this discussion, I discuss with Jen and Chris how to make beer relevant in the marketplace, how to improve service, and ask what breweries and venues need to do to be better. It's a great chat that covers a lot of ground, and I hope you enjoy it just as much as I did. Jen Blair and Chris Pisney, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, it's the start of my day, as is always the case uh, when we speak to somebody in the US. It's the start of my day, so I'm drinking coffee. Uh, have you both knocked off with a, with, with a beer? Not quite yet. Yeah, I'm, in about an hour, <laughs> I'll be uh, diving into beer. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, before we say anything, uh, I, I need to say, Jen, congratulations. You've Thank just you. succe- been announced as one of the latest of the uh, Master Cicerones. Yes, thank you so much. I was really thrilled to get that news. I was thrilled. Now, news. I do have to say, now your job <laughs> is uh, you're the uh, exam director um, of, <laughs> of the Cicerone Association. I take it that the the organization had to restructure itself so you could sit your exam? Uh, yeah, you know, a little bit. Uh, it's very, uh, I, used, I used to be an attorney and in law firms, it's called the, the, the Chinese wall. And so I, yeah, I didn't, I don't have any part of the, the master Cicerone exams. Uh, so it's, I, I learn all of the information at the same time, all the other candidates do. Maybe we can pick up from there. So I started studying law as well. I wanted to be a criminal barrister, but never, I realized, well, not quickly enough that it probably wasn't for me. But how did you go from a legal profession into the brewing industry and into the Cicerone organization? Sure. Well, I I would say that I learned a little bit too late that the legal field wasn't for me, but uh, I had been a home brewer for, uh, I guess now about 10 years. And as a very young attorney, like I mentioned, I I learned very quickly that that wasn't really the field for me. Uh, And as a home brewer, I thought that beer was really interesting. And I obviously I still do. Uh, through all different, you know, you can get through it through uh, so many different avenues. And I wanted to learn more about beer. That's when I found the Cicerone program, which provided me a really good framework for focusing where I wanted to learn um, and what kind of material I wanted to be reading because, you know, there's there's a lot of information out there that can be outdated or, you know, sometimes just plain wrong. Uh, and so with the Cicerone program and the resources they recommended, I was able to get, uh, you know, a, a pretty good, like, peer-reviewed, fact-based uh, self-education on beer and eventually made my way into the brewing industry via the nonprofit channel. I was the executive director of the Craft Maltzers Guild here in the U.S. And um, from there, started doing more beer education. That's really where I saw my career going after that. And I've been with the Cicerone program for about a year and a half now as their exam manager. And it's been really cool to be on the other side of the curtain and to see, you know, kind of the inner workings of things and to be a part of a really close-knit team that, you know, we really, uh, we celebrate each other. We celebrate the wins for our candidates when they pass. Um, We're always really happy to see that. And yeah, so that's, I've been in the industry full-time about six years now. What was the attraction? Uh, I'm always fascinated about what draws people to to craft beer and also to home brewing. And uh, we see a lot of 
brewers coming from uh, science backgrounds or even computer programming backgrounds. And I've got a theory around that. But what was the attraction of homebrewing for you? For me, I'm very much a maker. I like to figure out how to make things. I also love cooking and baking. And so learning that I could actually make my own beer was, you know, just a, a creative endeavor for me that really led me down that road. I'm not a mechanical person at all. I do know several <laughs> engineers and, <laughs> and such who just love to like tinker with their systems. That's not me. Whatever whatever system I have in front of me, I can figure out how to brew on. Um, but I'm just kind of hopeless when it comes to the mechanical stuff. Uh, and, you know, just that being able to read the theory and then being able to apply that on a small scale at home was really, really helpful for me. And how about beer? What what was the attraction of beer? Obviously, you know, beer has had traditionally uh, tended to be a male-oriented focus, and craft beer has done a lot to broaden its appeal. Um, but what was your progress in, into becoming a beer drinker? I, um, you know, I've always always been a beer drinker, and I actually have an older sister who, at one point when I was just drinking, you know, macros like Bud Light things like that. She said, don't, don't drink that. Uh, try this instead. And she gave me a Boulevard unfiltered wheat. And that was my first really craft beer and kind of entrance into beer being able to taste like nothing I had been used to thinking beer tasted like before. And, you know, from there, just learning to try different styles and, you know, kind of going through that same learning curve that a lot of people go through where, you know, it's kind of the wheat beers were my, my entrance and then kind of drinking whatever I possibly could. And now I'm back around to uh, a really well-made lager is usually my go-to. <laughs> there oh, I, I, there's two or three things that I'd like to come back to out of that. Uh, and, but we, we, we'd better introduce Chris. Chris, you've got, uh, you don't have a background in law, but you've got a background in uh, corporate communication. Yeah. So I, I think between the, the, the two of you, uh, so I went from law into corporate communications and uh, we, we, we've got both skills on offer and today. And it all started with a homebrew kit. Uh, for my birthday one year or something like that. And I made the beer with it and it was awful as it usually is. And I put it down for a while (laughs) and I picked it back up. And for some reason, I couldn't stop making beer to the point where one year my wife um, got together with the rest of my family because I had always talked about starting my own brewery like you know, half of the people that you probably talk to every day. Um, And my whole family pitched in to send me to the Siebel Institute for their, um, they have a two-week brewing theory course in Chicago. So it's kind of like space camp for brewers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's a great experience and a great uh, learning opportunity and they still offer it and they have an online version too. But the Siebel Institute is America's oldest brewing school. And I, you know, I was thinking about starting a brewery at the time. And one of the things that I thought, granted, this was in 2011, that the Chicago market was too saturated with breweries for me to differentiate myself. And that was 2011. God, how many were there? Would have been two or 3,000 breweries in 2011? Uh, maybe 2,500 or something like that. 2,500, yeah. Uh, now Such five a crowded marketplace. In the U.S. Um, but I, at the same time, I had heard about... I obviously knew Ray Daniels because he had written books about beer that I had read. And um, he was also an instructor at Siebel while I was there. And I'd heard about Cicerone. um, And one of the instructors talked about Cicerone um, at the time. So I figured, well, let me check this out. And the next year, no, it was that year, 2011, I took... Certified beer server exam and the certified Cicerone exam. And I did really well. Um, and Ray reached out and asked me if I wanted to do some work. And I said, sure. And I didn't hear from him for like a year. And then there was a job <laughs> opening and he hired me. Um, so I kind of fell into the whole Cicerone thing, but um, I'm, I'm very uh, fortunate to have done so. 
Can I, and again, um, please feel free to tell me to step off if it's an inappropriate question, but the, the idea of generations um, as as craft beer matures. Can, can I ask how old you both are? I'm 54, by the way. So, uh, you know, I, I was very much uh, cutting my teeth before craft beer was even a thing in Australia. But uh, it fascinates me at what point people embrace craft beer in, in, in terms of the cycle. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm 48. Yeah. 48, yeah. okay. Beer's been good to you, Chris. I'll, I have to say I was going to say it was a little bit younger than that. That's the nicest thing I'll hear all day. <laughs> And I'm 43. Okay, so uh, okay again because generate you know I, I, it fascinates me, and depending on when we say that the craft beer um, movement, but we are starting to see a lot of generational change um, as craft beer matures, as we've recently heard. So we, we we might come back to that a little bit as well. Um, when you both heard about Cicerone, you, you were obviously already into beer. Um, but for me, one of the things that excited me most in, in, in the very, very early 2000s, late uh, 1990s, was Australia basically had one beer that was branded 17 different ways, um, and that was mainstream lager. And I was doing beer and food matching um, because when you, wheat beers were very influence, uh, early influence on me, anything from Belgium, which were beers that generally managed to travel quite well. Um, and when you're pairing them with cheese and chocolate and you know, different foods, one of the constant refrains that I heard when I would talk to people about it was, you know, how do you match beer with chocolate? because they were only drawing on their experience of mainstream lagers um, and couldn't see how that worked because to them, that was all beer was. And I realized it was a little bit like trying to describe a sunset to somebody that was colorblind. They had no frame of reference to draw upon to understand. And that was when I started doing beer and food pairings because I thought that the best way to educate people was to show them. Um, And that was a, a great way of doing it. And Part of that was glassware, so you weren't just using standard beer glasses, which didn't elevate the experience and didn't elevate the flavor. And when did Cicerone start? It really started in the late 2000s? It was founded in 2007, and we started giving exams in 2008. So, yeah, and, and it was just when we started hearing a lot of the conversation about elevating the experience and service mattering to the, the, the growth of craft beers. W- w- was that one of the attractions for you both or was it, uh, or what was your attraction getting involved in, in, in the formal learning that Cicerone offered? That's a good question for me. I think it was, you know, it was definitely positioned as something that was very challenging and, and almost an elite type of uh, person who could who could pass those those types of exams. So I think I, I for me it was just validating the expertise and the, um, knowledge that I had. Jen. Yeah, for me, I mean, if I, I always joke, if I could stay in school forever, I could. I, I absolutely would. I, I am a lifelong learner. And now it's funny because uh, when I learned that I had passed my master, several people had asked, well, what are you going to do next? And I was like, well, I have a, a list on my phone that I've been keeping of, you know, of different things I would like to pursue now. Um, for me, like I mentioned earlier, it gave me a structure, being able to look at the syllabus and go through uh, each bullet point, I felt like it was giving me a much more well-rounded education than I would get on my own. Also, as a woman, like you mentioned, in a male-dominated industry, I tend to get talked at a lot. And as somebody who is a very motivated self-learner, that gave me the opportunity to learn this information on my own and then also be able to share that information with other people whose, you know, whose identities might intersect with mine. Um, but maybe not with the majority of the industry. So I really appreciated that about the uh, just about the program of you know having that clear roadmap of what to study and what to learn. And for me, I, I became much more uh, passionate about beer service the farther along 
I got into the Cicerone program and, you know, going out, I always joke when I, uh, when I teach people like about off flavors is that it's kind of a double-edged sword because you're really excited that now you can taste diacetyl, but then you realize how much <laughs> bad beer you've been paying for. And kind of like, once you learn what a clean glass looks like, you realize how many dirty glasses you get served beer in. And uh, that for me was also, you know, a, a driving thing that's made me more passionate about that service side and the edu- the consumer education side as well. And that for me is the, the, the number of it. I'm somebody who loves lifelong learning as well. And I, I'm constantly seeking out new information. But then there's also part of me that as the um, professional outsider, as I think journalists have to be to some extent, getting to, you know, passing the qualifications, it, it, it changes your focus about it. And then you want to become a, a cheer squad for it and you stop questioning um, on, on one thing. But then the other thing uh, about it, Jen, for me is is it, 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 exactly that. For me, it is the the best beer is a good beer shared well um, kind of thing. And setting the bar too high and becoming too aware of the faults and the failures um, that you have to, to, to reach a certain level of qualification, I always worry that it'll take away from the experience for me. Is that something that you've had to grapple with and teach yourself to shut off? Um, sometimes, yes. Uh, that was, you know, when I started down the road of uh, different Cicerone certifications, and I also do quite a bit of beer judging. I was a little reticent at first because I was worried that I would lose my ability to just be able to enjoy a beer. And the the more practice you get with it, you know, the the easier it is to kind of switch off that critical part of your brain and, you know, doing things like taking an exam or beer judging is very different from, you know, just socially enjoying a beer. And so there, you know, there are times that I might pick up on something that maybe the flavor isn't quite what I expected, but I can still enjoy it. Um, and that's something too, as, you know, as somebody who does a lot of beer education that I really try to impress on consumer facing roles is, when you meet somebody who's new to craft beer or who's maybe just beginning their journey in craft beer, they, uh, you know, oftentimes have kind of this obscure beer that they say, oh, I had this one beer once and it was fantastic. And it's, you know, maybe some like one-off that the brewery did. But what they really talk the most about is the bartender talking with them and suggesting this style or suggesting this beer to them. And that's the beer that really got them into learning more about craft beer on the flip side, there are people who say, you know, I went in, I wasn't really sure what to order. I've only ever drank like a macro lager and the bartender was dismissive and rude or, you know, or something like that. So I just didn't try again. And so that's so important to, you know, to be able to appreciate that your personal experience, but also be able to elevate that experience for other people because you may be the person that, you know, opens that door or, or kind of, you know, uh, gatekeeps. Interesting. Yeah. Chris, if you were to summarize what the, and this is very meta, um, what, what, what the purpose of Cicerone is to the broader industry, um, how, how would you describe that if that's not a really, really unfair question? Sure, sure. And I'm a context person, so I think maybe, maybe the context would help uh, uh, illustrate that a little bit more. So as I mentioned, we started giving exams, Cicerone, Ray at Cicerone started giving exams in 2008. And a lot of people know him for his books, but I don't think as many people know him, uh, know that he worked at the Brewers Association in the United States for several years before starting Cicerone. And it was during his time at Cicerone, part of his job was to travel the country and visit breweries and talk to brewers. And he would see how much in the terms of resources, time, effort that brewers put into making the best beer possible. And then at the end of the day, he'd ask for recommendations for bars or restaurants with really good beer programs. And then he'd visit those establishments and Sometimes the beer didn't taste like the beer that came out of those breweries. 
And sometimes the servers that were working there didn't know a whole lot about the beers that they were selling Ray. And so he thought there has to be some way of incentivizing those professionals who sell and serve beer. The ones that make the beer drinking experience, whether you like light American style lagers or pastry stouts, whatever. Making that experience as great as the beer that left the brewery. And eventually he thought, well, maybe I should just do it. Um, and so he solicited feedback from people in the industry, from uh, brewery operators, from retailers, from wholesalers, about the type of knowledge that should be expected from people who are selling and serving beer. And with that feedback, you know, gave birth to the concept of Cicerone. So our, our mission is to empower beer professionals around the world through the development and recognition of beer skill and knowledge. And the main way we achieve that is through our series of certification exams that we've been talking about. It really crystallized something that I've long thought about beer is, you know, wine has so much theater and so much education and knowledge and you know it's put on a pedestal so much and yet the act of serving wine is very simple um you know you open a bottle and you pour it and it will look the same um no matter whether it's well poured or badly poured you know so long as it's not spilt um it it, it, it just does and even the act of getting wine to market is so much easier than beer that, that that's perishable but um and, and it's a constant frustration to me when i do beer tastings the intensive service that's required you know you, you can go to a wine tasting and all of the wines have been poured before anyone sits down and it doesn't matter whereas at a beer tasting if they've been poured even five minutes there's no head they look terrible they don't look inviting and there is so much difficulty just inherent in a minimum level of service for beer let alone a great service of beer that makes beer inviting and attractive that it's a huge challenge that we've set ourselves uh, with the product that we love. And now more than ever, I think, um, from what we've, A, what we've seen about consumer tastes are shifting and uh, the workforce has changed a lot since 2020. Uh, I've talked to a lot of operators that are having a lot of trouble finding staff to sell and serve their beer. And when they find them, they have maybe they've never drank a beer in their life. Maybe they're not even old enough to legally drink beer. But their job is to sell and serve it. So uh, this is a real opportunity for the beer category to make sure that, that we're investing in, in training uh, the people that are on the front lines of selling and serving beer. Stepping away from this great advice about beer service and the Cicerone program, we're just going to hear some business advice now from Nick Boots and the business of beer. Chris, there was something that you said that um, tied in really nicely uh, with something that Jen said a little bit earlier. And Jen's introduction to beer was wheat beer. Um, and I, I think, you know, going back 10, 15, 20 years, wheat beers, wit beers, um, you know, the, the, the classic European styles were for many of us the thing that showed us that beer could taste a little bit different um, from the, the mainstream lagers. Uh, they tasted different when you heard uh, tasting notes of banana and clove. They were things that were immediately recognizable. So you felt, hey, I've got a good palate too. I'm not getting gooseberries and wet granite the way that wine people were saying. Um, but there was something about those beers. We, we almost see none of them being made commercially in, in Australia anymore. Is that the same as the US? You know, those classic uh, phenolic uh, German-style wheat beers? I know that there's an American wheat beer that's a little bit different. Um, I would say it depends on the market. I know there's a, you know, Allagash makes a, a wheat beer that's very popular in the United States. And uh, there are a lot of small breweries uh, right across the street from the Cicerone program HQ that make a decocted mashed um, Hefeweizen. So, you know, I, not really. <laughs> I, I don't know. Is, 
I'm not sure. I'm not sure uh, that they've totally vanished. But at the same time, uh, you know, these classic styles that fired our imaginations over the last 10 years, the number of styles that have been cut from whole cloth, you know, whether it's brewed IPAs, cold IPAs, that are variations of, of, of style, but are evolutions. When you have such rapid, and, you know, and all of the pastry stouts and all of the, um, you know, experimentation and innovation and fun that the, that the brewers are having, um, it makes it very difficult for consumers when there is a movable feast of style and, you know, this is a very nebulous question, you know, in wine, grape varieties don't change, you know, Riesling is Riesling, you know, uh, and so you can learn about these things and the popular styles or the popular varietals may wax and wane with, with, with fashion, but you don't really see innovation uh, to, to the same level that we do in beer. Um, that makes it hugely challenging, I would imagine, for beer servers and Cicerones to, you know, define what styles are and stay abreast of styles, but then also communicate that to consumers who are bewildered by the array of choices. Jen, do, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. This is this is something I'm very passionate about that I uh, from the particularly speaking to breweries. One thing that I really emphasize is that everyone in your company should be talking about your beer the same way. So the consumer is getting a consistent experience if they're talking to your sales rep and the sales rep describes the beer this way. If they go to a bar, the server is describing the beer the same way. Uh, you know, we've got everybody in the beer industry probably has, you know, lists of uh, times that they've heard people describe something like a triple as being a blend of three beers uh, by, you know, by a server, which is if, if you're not doing that staff education, I, that's a reasonable, you know, conclusion to draw if you're not very familiar with, with the beer and the beer style, but that can also undermine your consumer's trust in, you know, in your staff. Mm. And that's not the staff's fault. That, that's a, an oversight in training. And on the flip side of that, not only, or I guess along the same line, not only should everyone be talking about your beer in the same way, but you should be talking about it in a way that the consumer understands. So meeting your customers where they are. Um, for instance, I, I had worked for a brewery before that when I started there doing a quality and beer education, looking at the menu on the menu, it said something about like this has cryo citra hops in it. And when I was looking at our menu, I thought I said, okay, first of all, nobody, there's not any kind of style guideline or description on here to tell somebody who doesn't know what this brewery is about, what these beers are. And, you know, the beers were a mix of like the really, really heavy stouts, like pastry stouts, and then also mixed fermentation. So very kind of polarizing styles, and there weren't any clear descriptions to tell the customer what that was. And the, like the cryo hop was one of the first things I said, get this off the menu, because the, there's a very small subset of people for whom that might be important information, but it's not really relevant to their drinking experience. And to people who don't know what that is, we've just, you know, we're, we're, that could be a perception of gatekeeping that we're trying to make this, you know, like only the people in the know will understand what this beer is. So if you don't understand what this description is, your conclusion is, well, then maybe this beer and by extension, this brewery is not for me. Uh, so having that clear, consistent, descriptive language that is understandable for your consumers is, is just one, I think for me, is one of the absolute most important things that a brewery should be doing. That's some really interesting insights there. Again, Chris, you know, on one hand, the broadest part of the market doesn't seem to be terribly more educated about even simple mainstream lagers than they were 20 years ago. And yet as an industry, again, this massive innovation and you know the, 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 the level of product knowledge that the pointy end has that is just unobtainable by a casual, someone with only a passing interest in you know their local brewery how do we reconcile those as as, as beer professionals and beer servers um, knowing how to communicate you know an incredibly complex product 
Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that we emphasize at the very entry level of the Cicerone program, the Certified Beer Server exam, is how to talk about beer flavor. And that's that's kind of where we get that communication between server, beer professional, and consumer that's accessible. You know, what do hops taste like generally? What do fermentation flavors generally uh, taste like in a beer? What do malt flavors? And just the basics. So that gives somebody a foundation to give a customer who's like, what kind of beer is this at the bar? The server has those that vocabulary, that very basic vocabulary to have a conversation and say, well, it's kind of minty with a little bit of banana and, you know, a little like a water cracker malt flavor. And that gives the consumer enough information to make a purchasing decision. So that's really one of the big things that we emphasize um, at you know, the, the early levels of the program so we can have good communication with, with customers and, and really keep them in the beer category. Even that, keep them in the beer category. Um, one of the reasons I focus on, I'm so fascinated about generations, is that, you know, in, in my 50s, um, when I was first drinking legally in the, in the late 1980s, um, beer was what was socially acceptable for young 19 20 year old men to drink so even if you didn't like the flavor of it um you you developed an appreciation for it because socially um that was the expectation anyone who's uh in 21 in the us or you know 18 19 in in australia has such a wide variety of um options these days and a lot of those um, and this sounds judgmental, it's not meant to be, but cater to a less mature palate, you know, a sweeter palate that has skewed over the, the, the last 15 or 20 years. The beer is a challenging product to, to, to come at. Um, how, how do we inspire enthusiasm for drinkers to choose beer over the array of other sometimes easier um, beverages to, 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 to come at? And because if they don't uh, develop a taste for it, they'll never stay in um, the, the, the beer ecosystem. Uh, well, that's the million dollar question, right? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I think, and this is what we're trying to do at Cicerone, is create uh, an army of beer evangelists who are doing just that, talking about beer flavor in a way that is, you know, enticing to consumers. I agree with Chris. I think that, you know, we are continuing to face an uphill battle as far as beer goes, because for so long it was, you know, macro lagers. And that's still the, the you know, what, like 95% of the beer that sold worldwide. And that's, that's going to be difficult to overcome. And there's always, you know, there's still, there's value in, in the macro lager. So I, I'm definitely not um, denigrating that, but it, it is difficult because it's not the, the, the sexiest alcohol category anymore. You know, on, on TikTok, they have the untapped dads trending. Um, so as we're starting <laughs> to see kind of that old, or I shouldn't say old, but as, as the demographic, that demographic is starting to age. That's one of my fascinations. Yeah, <laughs> again, it, it, it's exactly that. And, you know, there is part of that um, untapped dad um, that craft beer became so identifiable with a period in time. You know, I, I, I think of disco and flares and things like that, <laughs> that, you know, it, it, it became so extreme um, and so... I've got to be careful here, it potentially to some scene is so ludicrous that, you know, any value in, you know, and there was some great disco music, um, but for a long time it was toxic and, and no one wanted to even open that box to, to appreciate it on any level. And, you know, the untapped ads and the, there was an element of the very visible craft beer culture that I think is um, less appealing to a to a younger drinker as well. Is that a, a a fair comment and something that we need to be mindful of? Yes, I, I definitely think so. And um, I have not been able to find where I read this stat, but one of the biggest growing markets for craft beer 
is younger women, like Gen Z, the, the people who are starting to come into drinking age. And so, you know, that, that has such potential to, you know, to really help the market, uh, and help craft beer, but craft beer has to be willing to shift that focus, you know, and decenter who has been centered for so long in craft beer and, you know, put that focus somewhere else to, to make it more welcoming. And we, we are seeing that change. Um, it's still a very small change, but, you know, but it is happening. And I think that, you know, craft beer is really going to hit the point where it's, you either adapt or you don't. And, you know, and then craft beer kind of fades away into the background until kind of the next cycle happens. And who knows when that will be. Uh, and again, that's one of the reasons why I think the, the Cicerone program, you know, for someone like me, who is part of a historically excluded community in the beer industry, it is very much an equalizer. And, you know, then it's, it's the, that knowledge and how to communicate that knowledge has gone from, you know, kind of the back room, like oh, there's only a handful of, of beer experts who all look and talk and sound the same, um, who have this knowledge. And instead it's with the Cicerone program, that knowledge is becoming much more democratic, is becoming much more available. Here's where you can find this information. And, you know, hopefully the, the craft beer industry on a larger scale will adopt that attitude of understanding that we need to adapt to where the new customers are coming from that yeah again so so much i could unpack one of the things that um i see is having driven you know drinks culture not just beer culture is very visual social media so instagram tiktok and i i don't think it's just my age but there is something about a beer that's been well poured that is just so visually appealing, whether even something like a macro lager um, that is just beautifully poured and sits golden in a clean glass under a pillowy white head. And I, you know, I, I get excited even thinking about that. But then, you know, there, there's something very visual about that um, that just lends itself to modern communication. And yet so often we get served beers that, you know, just look terrible. They, they, they look terrible in real life, let alone shared on social media. Um, you know, even at a very base level, um, teaching uh, better service, better visual service of beer um, is such a powerful thing. Chris? Yeah. Uh, that's why we started Beer Clean Glass Day a few years ago. It's, it's a Saturday, every, I think it's the third or fourth Saturday in April every year. Hashtag Beer Clean Glass. <laughs> and we celebrate um, those people in the industry who are dedicated to making beer look Instagrammable. And that's, you know, the found, uh, one of the foundations of the program is how to make sure that a glass just isn't just clean, it's beer clean and really ingraining what that is and what that means to our program participants. So yeah, yeah, the, the aesthetic aspect is huge because people drink with their eyes. And even a little bit more than that, a, a great friend of one of the very early um, women champions of beer in, in Australia was uh, Kiralee Waldhorn, um, uh, who, who's known as the beer diva, and she was a great educator and great presenter. And you know, again, as a as a young man in the 1980s, when you would go to the pub, Australia has a culture of um, shouts where you know you're there with four mates and you come back with, and everyone takes a turn of buying a round of beers. Um, but of course, when you're coming back with with the death grip around four uh, glasses of beer that have been filled to the top without um, a, a good collar of foam on the top, you know it's it's running down the side. You put it on the bar table that may or may not have uh, coasters or beer mats. So you know it's only one or two rounds in, and the top is sticky and wet. Um, and you know, Kiralee made the point that there is something about that. You know, men just roll their sleeves up and lean into the mess. Um, whereas, you know, women want somewhere to put their handbags or, you know, they, they, they've got nice shoes, whereas men's leather shoes, you just um, dust them off the, the, the next morning. And there is a whole lot about the culture of service. It's, you know, visually appealing, but then also just inviting to non-traditional beer drinkers, all of which flows from service. If you don't feel included, 
because there's something <laughs> that's just unattractive uh, about beer service. It makes it very difficult. And I still think there's a lot about beer service for all of the advances that education has made that we're getting some of those basic things very, very wrong. Jen? Uh, yeah, I, I do agree with that in terms of getting basic things wrong. And as I, I have limited experience behind the bar because I'm not really a people person, but um, you know, in, <laughs> in my experience... Um, I have caught myself doing that. You know, if we uh, had at the brewery I worked out, worked with, if, you know, a, a man or woman came down, came in and, and sat down, I would say, oh, do you want to start a tab? And, and, you know, if it was two men or two women, it was, oh, do you want to start tabs? You know, and catching myself that, you know, like this isn't, not everybody who comes in here is going to fit into this heteronormative thing where there's going to be one check because it's a man and a woman and the check goes to the man. And, you know, catching myself and realizing like, oh, man, I, I do it too sometimes. And, you know, and unlearning those habits and just, you know, asking everybody the same the same kinds of questions. And, you know, and that's huge. I just recently was at a brewery with my husband and I ordered a tamave and he ordered their wit beer and the server came over and put the tamave in front of him and the wit beer in front of me. And, you know, we were like, I was going to talk about the same thing. Yeah, (laughs) Switch those around. That's actually mine. And that's a really simple step to just say, hey, who had this one? Who had this one? And that that is the kind of thing that, I'll, you know, I I take note of when that happens. But I also take note of when somebody says, OK, who had the tamave? Who had the wit beer? And that is something a lot of times is overlooked. And at a very, very basic level, uh, you know, making sure that people feel safe. And when I say safe, I mean feel physically safe in your space. If I walk up to a business and look inside and I don't see anyone who, you know, I don't see any other women like that, that's going to give me pause on whether like, well, is this space for me? If I'm the only person in here who looks like me, is this is is this a safe space for me? And, you know, and and speaking that way with, you know, with craft beer, with beer in general is overwhelmingly white, is overwhelmingly male. And, you know, as owners as managers taking a look at who is in your your business and who is not and and examining why and I really can't emphasize enough that physical safety for a a good deal of historically excluded groups is a very real concern and that's something that you know the business owners need to be aware of and take seriously and address and that goes a long way toward making people feel welcome in the space. It's not enough to, um, you know, have like the everyone is welcome here sign because is everyone welcome? Do, do you want every single person to feel welcome in your tap room? Probably not. There's probably some people who are going to make the rest of your customers feel unsafe. Maybe they shouldn't be in there. And, you know, just the saying that blanket of, oh, everyone is welcome here, that, that sends a message to historically excluded communities that isn't the message you think it's sending. And uh, again, that that's what I re- very much picked up from Kiralee was the stuff that I wasn't even aware of that I just took for granted and took as normal. And, you know, you can have everyone as welcome signs up or, you know, half price drinks for women to, <laughs> thinking that that's the way you encourage when quite often it's the behavior that you and, and, and just very simple behaviors, not threatening behaviors or anything like that, but people feel excluded because they don't feel comfortable. Um, and that was Chris, is that something I know that we're a little bit off the, 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 the core Cicerone learnings here, but is that stuff that Cicerone does build into the culture of beer service, you know, thinking about these sorts of things? Yeah, we just started. Um, and one of the things so we changed our whole, we put a lot of effort into the candidate experience in the last year. So at this point in time, everyone who sits the certified beer server exam, uh, they are reminded of their responsibility as a beer professional to educate themselves about ways to reduce harm, violence, harassment in the workplace, whether it's customers or coworkers. Um, And we collect data on their exposure to things like responsible service training and bystander intervention training. And after they 
take the exam and pass the exam, we say, hey, we've got some resources on our website you can check out to learn more. So yeah, we're starting to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, one of my favorite sayings, I'm very conscious of time. I could talk, if it was an Olympic event, I could talk about beer uh, for Australia. But um, I, I, thank you very much for in, indulging my questions. But it, it, what do you want to say about the Cicerone program? You know, what is your pitch to Australian beer service professionals um, that they should get involved in the Cicerone program? What do you offer and, and what benefits do they get professionally and for the industry? That's a great question. Um, I think people got into the beer business because they're passionate about beer and they should understand that maybe their employees don't share the same level of passion as they do. So they need to take a leadership role and demonstrate that they value their development in terms of beer knowledge and, you know, help elevate the customer experience. Jen, anything to add? And, and also why breweries um, should be looking at getting their staff? Yeah, I, um, I agree with what Chris said. And I, you know, I, one brewery I worked at, one of the things I was charged with was getting a good amount of our staff throughout the breweries through multiple locations, uh, certified Cicerone. And that was one of the things that, you know, when I was rolling out, okay, here's what the training plan is going to look like. And then I showed them like the $10,000 plus price tag. You know, the reaction was, well, it, yes, it's expensive, but is it worse to train someone and they leave or you don't train someone and they stay? And I think that is a very good outlook to have because particularly in brewing, uh, or in, you know, in the beer industry, it is a somewhat transient industry. You do have people moving positions, uh, and that's that's the nature of you know, with craft beer, with small breweries, a lot of times there's a ceiling of where, you know, your your brewer can can be brewing full time. But are they ever going to be the head brewer? Maybe not. Are they going to learn how to brew on a bigger system? Probably not, unless they go to a different location or a different brewery. So it does tend to be a little transient. So I think there is a fear with leadership of investing in those employees because what if they leave? Uh, but you're not going to be sorry when you invest in your employees and they stay in large part because you invested in them. And I think this, you know, the Cicerone program is, is great for that to show employees, okay, these are the expectations and also we're going to support you and help you to get there. And we can do this through the Cicerone certification program. And another big selling point I, I tell people is, particularly employees, to encourage that buy-in in the training is this is not specific to this job. Once you have this certification, you have the certification and it you take it with you everywhere and it's going to be a benefit. And it's excellent shorthand to show potential employers, to show potential lenders, hey, I have the certification and you can go to the website and see all of the things that I mastered to earn this certification. That, that ties in nicely to something you said at the beginning when you, it, what I heard you say was one of the reasons that Cicerone was attractive was because of the number of people who assumed that as a woman, you didn't have beer knowledge and it, it's something you can hold up and sort of say, Take yes, that. I do. I definitely it's a shame do. that you have yeah. to, incidentally. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the world is uh, changing. But you, you've got a great um, champion. In fact, you've got a number of Australian uh, Cicerone champions uh, down here. But Paul uh, um, Daly um, has created the Cicerone community. And you're working very closely with him to, to ensure that the coursework and the, is very relevant to the Australian conditions, Chris? Yeah, that's absolutely right. We're soliciting feedback on uh, ways we might or assessing the need for us to uh, modify uh, a version of one of our e-learning platforms so that it's directly focused on the, the Australian market. So we're in the process of soliciting feedback on that. And he's helping us with our in-person courses and things like that. So we're really thrilled to have such an advocate and will we see uh, either or both of you down under at some stage? I can highly recommend a, a, a trip down here. 
You know, uh, we'd love to bring the advanced Cicerone exam to Australia, so it, it could definitely happen. Fingers crossed. <laughs> when, when you can make travel a tax deduction, uh, yeah. it, it, it's one of the, the, the joys of beer. Right. Yep, it, it certainly is. Now, last question. How can uh, our listeners who span, uh, we're very much an industry uh, podcast, but they span breweries, uh, um, licensed venues, but then also what we call prosumers, the professional uh, beer consumers. Um, how can they get involved um, in, in the Cicerone program? Uh, I think the best place to start is go to cicerone.org, C-I-C-E-R-O-N-E.org. And you can look at our various certifications there. We publish a syllabus, syllabi for every level of certification so you can understand the types of knowledge tested at each level. It's free for anyone to download. You don't have to create an account to see a syllabus or anything like that. Um, yeah, that's that's the best place to start. And we're, we've got some social media channels, too, at Cicerone on Instagram. And um, I think it's the same on Facebook. We just started a TikTok channel. So <laughs> down with the kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so which one of you uh, Dan, does the beer dance uh, on that? <laughs> I'll nominate uh, Chris. Neither one of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Pisney and Jen Blair, thank you so much for uh, staying at work uh, a little bit later so we could accommodate the, the time difference. And I've really enjoyed the chat and uh, all the very best. And hopefully we will get to have a beer uh, either uh, or maybe in Las Vegas next year or uh, down under when we can get you down here. Excellent. I appreciate the opportunity. It was a fun conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. And that was Jen Blair and Chris Pisney. You can find out more at Cicerone.org and there's also an Australian certified Cicerone group on Facebook that you should consider joining for support in your Cicerone journey. You can find links to both of those in the show notes. We'll be back this Thursday with our look at all of the news of the week. Thanks for listening.